0: I finally got sent away, I think, for a remark which turned out to be oddly prophetic, because our general, who was a very dashing figure called Boy Brining, said to Prince Bernard of the Netherlands that the Allied forces were going to advance into Germany over a carpet of airborne troops. And I said to our chief of staff, I wonder if they're going to be alive or dead airborne troops. This didn't go well at all. So everybody decided then that they'd had enough, and I got sent away. I... Asked if I could stay just as an ordinary officer in the operation, they
1: said no. Everyone said, the British took too much time coming up that highway. I I have felt that, had that been George Patton coming up that highway, he'd have made it.
2: Uh, when he said, General Horrocks, I asked Tucker, Can your lads do the job? Can they get the bridge? Colonel Thompson said, let me ask you a question, General. If we take that bridge, what assurance do we have from you that your tanks will be lined up uh, for Arnhem in force? And Horrocks, and I can remember his remarks as if they were yesterday, said my tanks will be lined up in full force, hell in for Arnhem, and nothing will stop them. That's
0: not what happened. One gun stopped them on the bridge, uh, that we were holding the northern perimeter and that we had removed the charges on the bridge, but that uh, we'd failed to get in, uh, any troops south of the river. And I said that the iron route, which was the southernmost route which we'd used, was still open, if you will ascend one battalion or one company from each battalion down line route there will be no opposition. I strongly recommend that you do one of these two things and Brigadier Lathbury said no I've decided that we're in contact with the enemy and we're not really well organized at the moment and my troops are too tired and I've, I will order them to stay where they are and make uh, a determined attempt in first light and I will come down to Lyon Route. Of course, that was the moment we lost the battle. If he had detached either one battalion or two companies,
2: to get onto the ridge, we'd have had. The uh, commanding, commander of uh, that task force, which was uh, Captain Carrington, and said, why are you stopping? And he said, well, I can't go up there. That gun will knock out the rest of my tanks. And I said, we will go with you and get that gun. He said, no, I can't go without orders. And I said, well, I'm giving you orders and uh, an American captain, giving a British captain, orders, went over like a lead balloon.
3: We were behind this dike and we charged over the top, carrying these flimsy canvas boats and charged down this embankment and set our boats in the water.
2: We lost our minds. We can't get across the every fire in those little boats. But we, you know, we, you do it anyway.
3: I like, can tell you honestly
2: and sincerely
4: that I didn't think any of us would make it across that river. Once they had captured the bridge, and this is the fateful, they could conceivably have pushed an armored infantry group up the road to reach Arnhem. I interviewed the German SS general, Harald, who was responsible for the defensive bridge, and he gave me an artillery map and artillery maps would always show the location of friendly units. And it's obvious from this particular map and his statement that there was very little on the road between Nijmegen and Arnhem at that time.
0: All the all the radio communications in 1st Paragraph Brigade um, broke down with the possible exception and in the 72 hours we were on the bridge, um, the radios were working for about all together, lumped together, about half an hour. I
2: was talking to Carrington, he was sitting in his tank, and we were having this argument about him not moving out. But when, uh, when he failed to move, and I ordered him to. He still failed to move. Uh, I cocked an atomic gun and put it to his head and told him if he didn't get this blankety-blank tank moving, I'd blow his head off. And with that, he ducks down into the tank, closes the hatch, and sits there the rest of the night couldn't get to it. Uh, as I understand, Carrington denies that anybody pulled a gun on him, but uh, his memory is not quite as good as mine. If
4: he really believes
5: that, by failing to bring the armoured reinforcements up to Arnhem, that is to say, a core of tanks, we're not just talking about the Grenadier Guards. The Irish Guards were sitting there waiting to go. Some of the Coldstream Guards were engaged in, still in the um, uh, in the Grossbeak Heights. Uh, there was there were certainly coming on for a hundred or so tanks which could have been sent down that road that evening and they weren't so the reason they weren't i would suggest was that this wasn't just an accident that somebody somewhere didn't want this mission to succeed
1: Welcome to part two of Operation Market Garden, the largest parachute drop in history and an effort on the part of the U.S. and Britain with their allied forces to strike at the heart of Germany in September of 1944. As we begin our story, the planning has been completed. The day of the attack, September 17, 1944, has arrived and an armada of planes and gliders are taking to the skies from 24 air bases in England carrying the 36,400 men and materials in transports and wooden gliders to their destination in German-occupied Holland. We join our story in progress. Private Charles Hogan had climbed into his glider on the morning of the 18th of September. The other soldiers were Private Paul Smolinski, Private Hardin workman, and the pilot, flight officer, William Akish. There was no co-pilot on board, One of the other soldiers had received a brief course in landing a glider, but we weren't looking forward to depend on that, writes Hogan. The glider contained a jeep, gasoline, ammunition, and small arms. Once we came over the English Channel, we flew into a very heavy fog. At one point, the glider pilot couldn't see the tow plane anymore. He then decided that the chances of hitting another glider or plane became too great in this situation so he cut the glider loose. The tow plane then sent out a signal to the Air-Sea Rescue Unit of the British Navy. Meanwhile, our glider went down and the pilot made a crash landing in the channel. All three other occupants of the glider were injured when the glider hit the surface of the water. I was not injured and was able to cut a hole in the roof of the glider and lift myself on top of the glider. Once I was on the wing, I could see the heads of the others bumping the top fabric of the glider. I cut holes for all of them and managed to pull all three of them up on the wings. The glider was constructed of wood and fabric, and it did float for about two, two and a half hours. The Air-Sea Rescue Unit managed to find us before the glider was swallowed by the water, and so we all returned to England safely. A few days later, I would make my way successfully to Holland. Charles Hogan's glider wasn't the only one that had problems with the heavy fog. Some tow planes and gliders got lost in the fog and eventually landed back in England and a total of 17 gliders landed in the channel. Only half of the guns that the 101st needed actually arrived at the drop zones. And this was another memory titled From the Sky We Lead, written by Dick Walsh, 508th Regiment, 82nd Airborne Division. Peering from the window of the plane, I tried counting the number of C-47s winging their way toward Holland. I gave up after reaching 300. Each plane carried a load of American paratroopers fully equipped to deal the German troops in Holland a back-breaking blow at the north end of the Siegfried Line. As the great armada roared over the Holland countryside, enemy troops below threw up small concentrations of flak, but not enough to cause concern. The majority of the men were veterans of the Normandy Airborne Invasion, men who had to ride through that flak thick enough to walk on. As the planes neared the drop zone, the jumpmaster yelled to stand and hook up. My legs felt like rubber as I leaped to my feet. I was scared and scared stiff, with one hand clung to a hand grip above my head and with the other hooked to the static line, to the anchor line, which runs parallel to the fuselage. A butterfly was slowly creeping into my stomach. Beads of sweat rolled down my cheeks, drenching the collar of my jumpsuit. I kept telling myself, everything will be okay, but the butterfly did not leave. I thought of an anti aircraft shell hitting the plane before the word go was given. Someone behind me was cursing and sobbing. Is everybody ready? yelled the jump master. Twenty one voices answered as one Hell yes, let's go! Again the jump master yelled, Okay. Pile out! I saw him disappear through the door. Then the second, the third, fourth, and I began the speedy shuffle toward the door. As I moved nearer the door, the butterfly suddenly disappeared. I felt light on my feet. I swore and threw my right foot out the door. Swearing always did seem to help. The prop blast caught my body and pulled me into nothingness. The parachute opened with a terrific jerk shaking every bone in my body. I opened my eyes, but could only see blackness. My helmet had slid over my face at the opening shock, completely obscuring my view. Finally, I arranged the helmet, then checked the chute for possible rips or broken suspension lines. I turned my attention to the ground when I heard the sharp barks of M1 rifles. Hundreds of men and parachutes covered the drop zone. The different colored parachutes resembled a large flower with insects crawling all over it. Overhead, more planes roared over, spewing paratroopers and equipment bundles. The sky blackened with men and parachutes. Running toward the west side of the drop zone were seven enemy ak gunners trying to reach the shelter of trees and brush which bordered the drop zone. A few seconds ago they were shooting 20 and 40 millimeter shells at us, causing planes and men to crash to their deaths. A score of paratroopers took aim and fired. The enemy fell to the ground and lay still. The swinging of the earth made me realize my own predicament. I was oscillating at a terrific rate, pulling slowly on the risers to halt the oscillation. I clamped my feet together and waited for the ground to rush up. A paratrooper looked up, then jumped aside. I relaxed for the landing and said a short prayer. I hit the ground backwards, but not gently. Rolling over on my back caused my tommy gun to act as a prop, and I ended the roll with my face deep in the sand. Half-blinded, I shook the sand out of the barrel and tried to pull back the bolt. Jam! I dropped the tommy gun and pulled an automatic pistol from my boot and snapped back the hammer. None of the enemy were in sight except two badly riddled bodies. I had landed near a 20 millimeter gun emplacement. Both barrels were shattered by grenades and the crew killed. The first few men in were two sticks, as they called them, of Pathfinders who landed on the fields of Schoonen Burgessfade at Overasselt to mark the drop zone. As soon as the first C 47s passed the Dutch coast, German anti aircraft guns opened fire on the low flying, unarmed transports. But incredibly, just one was shot down a C-47 named Betty piloted by Captain Richard Bohannon. Fifteen pair of troopers and the crew chief bailed out, but all the others were killed at impact. Upon reaching the ground, they got involved in a firefight. Two made it out. The others were killed or captured. Allied fighter planes escorting the convoy took out the German gun that had shot them down. Also on the jump was the American commander of the 82nd, Major General Gavin, he writes, At 1 p.m., just 13 minutes behind Jobert's Pathfinder team, the men of the 505th began jumping. On Gavin's C-47, all 18 men went out the door without a second's delay, Gavin recalled. We seemed to hit the ground almost at once. Heavily laden with ammunition, weapons, and grenades, I had a hard landing while the parachute was still oscillating. At once we were under small arms fire, coming from a nearby woods. I took my 45 caliber pistol out of its holster and laid it on the ground beside my hand. The M1911A1 one 45 caliber pistol, created before World War I, was a weapon that came in handy for a number of troopers at drop zone N that day. Remembering how German anti-aircraft guns in St. Mare Eglise had fired on descending paratroopers during the Normandy drop, a number of 505th men drew their 45s and began firing at the German gunners as they drifted downward under their open parachute canopies. Most of the German crews, although not all, broke and ran. With his personal 45 close at hand, and with German small arms fire sweeping over the drop zone, Gavin worked to free himself from his parachute. I quickly began to take my M1 Durand rifle out from under the reserve chute, and I got out of the parachute harness while I lay on the ground. The moment I had my equipment off and my rifle ready to use, I replaced my pistol in the holster and ran over toward the woods. Paratroopers from the 508 had made early attempts to seize the 2,000-foot-long highway bridge at Nijmegen on September 17th, but were thwarted by a superior German force. They did, however, manage to locate and deactivate demolition equipment that otherwise could have been used to blow the bridge. The German defense of the Nijmegen Bridge was resolutely fought and a stalemate followed that would not be broken for three more days. The Germans at the bridge weren't going anywhere but other German troops around Nijmegen, stunned at the surprise attack and unable to launch a counter, were headed for the hills to regroup. After nightfall on the 17th, a train filled with German troops attempting to escape rolled out of Nijmegen but was stopped by the 505th Reserve Battalion which ended its journey with a bazooka, rifles, and machine guns. The surviving Germans fled into the woods, but were soon rounded up by the paratroopers. The bridge at Nijmegen would eventually fall, but not without serious casualties. One of them was Private John Roderick Toll from Cleveland, Ohio. Toll was assigned to Company C of the 1st Battalion, 504th Parachute Infantry Regiment, part of the 82nd All-American Airborne Division. On September 21st, 1944, during Operation Market Garden, Toll engaged a German force with his rocket launcher in an attempt to disable two enemy tanks and a half-track. He was killed during the battle. He was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor six months later, on March 15, 1945. His citation reads, For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity, at the risk of life above and beyond the call of duty, The rifle company in which Private Toll served as rocket launcher gunner was occupying a defensive position in the west sector of the recently established Nijmegen Bridgehead when a strong enemy force of approximately 100 infantry supported by two tanks and a half-track formed for counterattack. With full knowledge of the disastrous consequences resulting not only to his company but to the entire bridgehead by an enemy breakthrough, Private Toll immediately and without orders left his foxhole and moved 200 yards in the face of intense small arms fire to a position on an exposed dike roadbed. From this precarious position, Private Toll fired his rocket launcher at and hit both tanks to his immediate front. Armored skirting on both tanks prevented penetration by the projectiles, but both vehicles withdrew, slightly damaged. Still under intense fire and fully exposed to the enemy, Private Toll then engaged a nearby house which nine Germans had entered and were using as a strong point and, with one round, killed all nine. Hurriedly replenishing his supply of ammunition, Private Toll, motivated only by his high conception of duty which called for the destruction of the enemy at any cost, then rushed approximately 125 yards through grazing enemy fire to an exposed position from which he could engage the enemy half-track with his rocket launcher. While in a kneeling position preparatory to firing on the enemy vehicle, Private Toll was mortally wounded by a motor shell. By his heroic tenacity at the price of his life, Private Toll saved the lives of many of his comrades and was directly instrumental in breaking up the enemy counterattack. Two notes. If you know anyone at Fort Bragg, the Toll fitness center there bears his name and an eyewitness account from Ross S. Carter, who was there with Toll, states that Toll took on five Panzer tanks, not two. In his 1978 book, On to Berlin, Gavin described what his division would have to do. The mission assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division was to seize the long bridge over the Meuse at Grave, to seize and hold the high ground in the vicinity of Grosbeek, to seize at least one of the four bridges over the Maswall Canal, and finally to seize the big bridge over the Rhine at the city of Nijmegen. Although Gavin necessarily focused on what was specifically required of the 82nd, two issues concerned him, the strength of the opposition and the British First Airborne's attack plan. To him, the plan for market seemed more akin to a peacetime exercise than an actual war plan. Intelligence reports indicated that the 82nd Airborne would face strong enemy forces. A regiment of Waffen SS Panzer Grenadiers was known to be in Nijmegen and a German armored unit was supposedly concealed in a nearby forest called the Reichswald. It was also known that 29 heavy and 88 light anti-aircraft weapons were deployed around the city. It was assumed that the anti-aircraft crews Would be prepared to fight as infantry, Gavin remembered in his book. That was an assumption that the 82nd would later learn the Germans had also made. On day one, just outside of Nijmegen, Colonel Reuben Tucker's 504th Parachute Infantry landed on the south bank of the Maas River and captured the bridge there at Grave, and four local villages were freed with hardly any fighting. They also succeeded in capturing one of the vitally important bridges over the Wall Canal, the Lock Bridge at Human. Here a critical blunder was made, according to some historians. The 82nd concentrated their efforts to seize the Grosbeek Heights instead of capturing their prime objective, the Nijmegen Bridge. The capture of the Grosbeek Heights was to set up a blocking position on the high ground to prevent a German attack out of the nearby Reichswald and to deny the heights to German artillery observers. As previously stated, word had apparently gotten to Gavin and Browning that there were 1,000 panzer tanks hidden in the woods southeast of the Grossbeek Ridge, so a large portion of Gavin's troops were assigned to clear and protect that ridge, rather than to secure the Nijmegen Bridge, which was the first priority of the mission. Browning had spent day one cruising around in his jeeps and making a special visit to the German border, into the Reichswald Forest, joking that now he could take credit as being the first British officer to stand in and piss on Germany. Then he took a moment to pose for a photograph. But this paled in significance by his refusal to accept the officer of the 52nd Lowland Division, which was being held in reserve in England and itching to get into the fight to come and help at Nijmegen as previously stated. Browning ended up watching 30 Corps crossing the Nijmegen days after Frost Battalion was reduced by 80% and had surrendered To the Germans. The fighting was constant all along the 60-mile route from the Belgian border to Arnheim in those four desperate days between September 17th and September 21st, 1944. And as you read the battlefield accounts, the acts of heroism along every mile were countless. There was the story of a pilot who, realizing he had missed dropping just a few badly needed crates turned back into anti-aircraft fire and was shot down trying to get relief to the troops on the ground. There was the soldier who stood alone with rocket launchers taking on Panzer tanks, German machine guns and half-tracks alone from exposed positions until a mortar round finally took him out. There was the young Dutch resistance man who climbed out on the Nijmegen bridge past the German guards and cut the wiring to the charges that had been placed beneath the girders, then led the first tanks into the city streets before he was wounded by a German 88 and then executed while he lay wounded. There were the men of the 504th who paddled canvas boats across the Wall River, taking 60% casualties from German machine guns placed across the river. Then, upon reaching the shore, fixed bayonets and charged the Germans across 800 yards of open fields under scathing fire. There were the beleaguered, starved and thirsty men of Frost Brigade, wounded and dying, trying to hold onto the bridge at Arnheim long enough for 30 Corps to reach them, and trying to care for their wounded and dying in the houses near the bridge, as Panzer tanks were destroying the structures they were taking shelter in and fighting from, building by building. And the three remaining brigades of the British 1st Airborne cut off just to their west, sometimes as close as a thousand yards away from Frost's trapped men, trying to cut through a dug in German Panzer Division to reach them and save them. There were Canadians, Poles, Americans, and British paratroopers fighting from building to building, from bridge girder to bridge girder, all along the 60 mile stretch being shot by Germans who were tied to the bridge structure above them with orders not to abandon their positions, and soldiers armed only with brent guns and knives going up against nearly indestructible panzer tanks. The sacrifice was more than can be counted, and although the men in Arnheim were forced to surrender, the fighting all along that bloody corridor continued for another 72 days nonstop. Did they fail? No way. But nowhere was the fighting more desperate and the heartbreak more evident than at Nijmegen, 11 miles south of Arnheim. The Germans controlled the southern foot of the Nijmegen Bridge, and they outgunned and outmanned the lightly armed paratroops at every step. The feared German 88s and heavy machine guns were positioned in hastily dug trenches in the Hunter Park traffic circle on the southern approach to the bridge, as well as in and around the houses there and a number of homes were burned down by the Germans to create better fields of fire. You can see what the Germans did to the houses there in the pictures we posted at Facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. They gutted the entire town. Company after company of the 82nd threw themselves at the German gun emplacement, only to be met by a torrent of rifle, machine gun, and every other type of weapons fire. Several paratroopers were killed by a machine gun on the Kaiser Kerouf Their bodies left sprawled and bleeding on the pavement. A number of other paratroopers were wounded and were taken to a makeshift first aid station set up in the houses on the Groksbeek Way, close to the traffic circle. Company G was stopped only some 400 yards from the bridge, but it couldn't advance a step further. This was all occurring in the first day of the drop. The first troops of the 82nd had encountered a jubilant crowd of Dutch townspeople as they first entered the town. But the Germans' position near the bridge quickly put a stop to that when they started firing on the approaching troops and the townspeople scattered and disappeared. The Germans were able to reinforce their positions with regular infantry troops and Luftwaffe personnel. They seemed to be coming out of the ground. Unable to advance due to fierce German opposition, The 508th PIR received a message from General Gavin to withdraw from close proximity to the bridge and reorganize. The Germans had tanks, heavy firing 88s, artillery, half-tracks, while the paratroopers had only their Bren guns and grenades. They might as well have been throwing rocks. The element of surprise seemed never to have been there in the first place. Frustrated, the 508s could do nothing but pull out of Nijmegen, leaving the town in German hands. To make matters worse, they got word that the British airborne troops were battling for their lives in Arnhem, a mere 11 miles north and east. The 508th fell back to drop zone T, but by then, the German troops had overrun the American position and had taken over the drop zone, while some 450 CG-4A Waco gliders Carrying gavins, artillery battalions, supplies, and vehicles were scheduled to arrive at this landing zone the next day, day two. Fortunately, Lindquist's 508, thanks to the arrival of the companies that had pulled back from Nijmegen, managed to recapture the fields on the 18th. That was day two, and just in time. Otherwise, casualties would have been devastating. Despite heavy fire from small arms and 16. 20-millimeter flak guns, Warren's battalion formed up and charged the enemy positions just as the first gliders started to land. One of the heroes of that day was 1st Sergeant Leonard A. Funk, Jr., who led elements of Company C in a fierce counterattack that cleared drop zone T of German infantry and anti-aircraft artillery and allowed the landing of reinforcing glider-borne troops and artillery of the 319th, 320th, and 456th Battalions. For his actions, Sergeant Funk received the Distinguished Service Cross. A total of 50 Germans were killed in the battle for the DZ. Another 149 captured, and all their 20 millimeter guns were destroyed. The fighting was bloody and determined all that day and night. The 508th also seized, occupied, and defended the Berg and Dahl Hillmass, which controlled and overlooked the Grosbeak-Nijmegen area. The regiment cut Highway K, an act that prevented the enemy from bringing in reserves or escaping destruction. That afternoon, on day two, General Browning, fearing that the British 30 Corps in Arnheim could not hold out much longer, requested that Gavin try again to take the Nijmegen Bridge. The Americans drew up a plan to seize the bridge in a night assault, Before the attack could be launched, however, Browning changed his mind and called it off, preferring that the 82nd hold the high ground south of Nijmegen for the time being. How Browning could have made this call, knowing that the fate of the entire mission was at stake, is beyond comprehension. Meanwhile, Frost and his 1,200 men, by the middle of day three, had been cut down by 50%, wounded and dying men littered the basements of the homes in Arnheim near the foot of the bridge begging for water and men were being killed trying to get to water in nearby backyards. The constant boom of tank fire and the sound of buildings imploding filled every desperate minute. Colonel Frost moved from house to house while he was still standing, always smiling, always encouraging his men who still held the bridge. Meanwhile, south of Arnheim, confusing and contradictory reports from Dutch civilians about the composition, size, and location of German units in and around Nijmegen and the Reichswald continued to filter into Gavin's headquarters to the point that no one really knew what or who they were facing. On the morning of Tuesday, September 19th, day three, the first reconnaissance vehicles from the 30 Corps Household Cavalry Arrived in the 82nd perimeter at Nijmegen, soon to be followed by Sherman tanks, Bren carriers, half tracks, and other armored vehicles. Because 30 Corps had to fight a series of ambushes and running gun battles all along Hells Highway, as Route 69, the narrow road between Eindhoven and Arnheim, and experienced a long delay at Sone, caused by a bridge demolition and the building of a temporary Casey Bridge by engineers. They were more than 30 hours behind. Looking at pictures of the narrow dirt road along which they had traveled, with a six-mile-long caravan of tanks, trucks, and infantry, it's a wonder they made it in 30 hours. It is not a highway built for speed. It was a single-lane dirt road, and this alone should have been enough to place serious doubt in the minds of those planning the mission, which was dependent upon speed. General Gavin and General Brian Horrocks, commanding the British ground column, met in Malden to discuss plans for getting across the Wall River as soon as possible. Gavin said he intended to send Lieutenant Colonel Ben Vandevoort's 2nd Battalion, 505th, against the south end of the bridge, while sending Tucker's 504th across in boats the next day. Day four, to capture the north end, a fight we've already related in this account, but bears added detail The only problem was, Gavin had no boats. Fortunately, the British had collapsible wood and canvas boats in their engineer train many miles back and offered them to Gavin. The British lorries carrying those boats were sent to Nijmegen with top priority. It was expected that they would arrive during the night of September 19th, 20th, day three, day four, but the boats did not arrive in the 82nd sector in time and the crossing had to be postponed. In addition, 2nd platoon B Company 307th Airborne Engineer Battalion under the command of Lieutenant Adrian Finlayson was ordered to collect any boats he could find on the Maas Wall Canal. In several sweeps the platoon gathered some 27 rowboats of all kinds but they were never used during the Wall River crossing. Why? Unknown. At least the wood might have stopped some of the bullets that the canvas boats could not. While waiting through day four, and now day five, for the British boats, Gavin ordered Bandervort's men, supported by British armor, to attack the south end of the Nijmegen Bridge. Repeated attempts resulted in repeated failures and mounting casualties. Intelligence reports estimated that some 500 SS men, backed by artillery, mortars, and anti-aircraft guns, controlled the highway bridge and the accesses toward it. How many men died asking the question, when are those tanks coming, is unknown. Reinforcements were needed badly. The weather in Holland was good. The weather in England, however, was bad with low-hanging clouds and fog preventing the 325th Glider Infantry Regiment from taking off and reinforcing the 82nd. The 325th would not arrive in Holland until September 23rd. I want to take just a moment to tell all of you about a brand new suitcase that I have called the Away Carry On. I travel often, and when I do, I try to pack everything I've got into a carry on so I don't have any other suitcases to worry about. The problem is, carry ons only generally carry a couple days' worth of clothing. It's absolutely awesome. I just spent four days visiting with family in cold weather and was able to pack everything into this brand new Away Carry On. Plus, my favorite feature. It charges my cell phone. I couldn't believe what a good job it did for me. And it's hands down the best travel suitcase I've ever owned. And it'll make the perfect gift for that hard-to-buy-for-person in your family. With its lifetime guarantee and 100-day trial, there's a perfect size and color for everyone on your holiday list. Or just grab an away gift card and let them decide. These suitcases are made of lightweight polycarbonate. The interior is super spacious with a patented compression system. And both sizes of the carry-on can charge all cell phones and anything else that's powered by a USB cord. It's free shipping within the mainland U.S. But best of all, our partnership with Away means a $20 savings for you when you go to awaytravel.com. That's A-W-A-Y travel.com forward slash 1001. And remember to use 1001 in the checkout. Remember, awaytravel.com one thousand one, and put 1001 in the promo code box at checkout. I'll leave the link to their website in the show notes for you. Meanwhile, back to our show. The Germans had no trouble reinforcing their position, however, and soon the Reichswald was bulging with troops, armor, and artillery. On the morning of September twentieth, 1944, day four, General Gavin climbed into his Jeep and drove off toward the power station when his Jeep was suddenly fired upon by German soldiers. The driver quickly turned the Jeep around while General Gavin fired back with his M1. The Jeep raced back to the 504th positions in the Junkerbosch area in southern Nijmegen. Exasperated with the delays, the British boat still hadn't arrived at that time on day four, and the stubborn German resistance, Gavin ordered Tucker to clear the area of enemy troops in preparation for the river crossing. H hour was set for 3 p.m. The paratroopers of, of Major Julian Cook's 3rd Battalion, 504th, set off, escorted by British Sherman tanks from the Irish Guards that would provide cover for the crossing. The tanks of the 2nd and 3rd squadrons took up positions behind a dike near the power plant and started to lay down a smoke screen. British artillery positioned in Malden would fire their 25-pounders to support the crossing. Eight British typhoon fighters from 247 Squadron, 83rd Group, flew over and strafed the North Bank.
3: We knew we weren't surprising anybody, that we knew. And so when guys got together in groups, they felt, well, this is it, guys, you know. Uh, I told my buddy, Rivers, look, I said, Rivers, if you make it across, and I don't, go to Wisconsin, see my mother and tell her what happened. He said, Maggie, I'll do the same if you do this, do that for me as well. Go to Massachusetts, Jigabee Falls. I said, okay, it's a deal. And when they opened up the, the, uh, the, the cover, of this sort of box truck where they had to brought the boats up in. They got up and they peeled them off like a deck of cards. Whew, here's your boat! We were behind this dike and we charged over the top carrying these flimsy canvas boats and charged down this embankment and set our boats in the water.
6: We lost our mind. We can't get across in that heavy fire in those little boats. But we, you know, you, you do it anyway.
3: I can tell you honestly and sincerely that I didn't think any of us would make it across that river to that to the opposite dike where the Germans were dug in with machine guns. We might have got across the river, but whether we could navigate that open terrain and route the Germans and capture the bridges, I didn't think any of us would make it. The Wall River, uh, to me, uh, stands out because of its daring and courage. The Germans couldn't believe that we would do it. Paratroopers did an awful lot of things. We went up mountains and, and we made assault landings and we attacked cities and we did everything. But asked to do that, which appeared to be an impossible mission, uh, made that something that that you'd never forget.
6: The people were taking their rifles and rowing, trying to get across quicker because that was withering fire. And they put up smoke but the Wind blew it right away. So we were pretty easy targets for the Germans at that time. Uh, some of them guys didn't have no paddles even. And that took a long time. Under all that fire. I used my hands. Besides, I could duck down a little further in the boat. <laughs> my
3: hands. the casualties we had and the, the brutality of it in a period of, say, four hours was unequaled in any battles that we fought.
6: You just had to keep going and going.
3: I don't know how to have
6: anybody lived through that.
3: And our chaplain was praying, and, the, and our battalion commander was citing the rosary. And we were praying under heavy fire and looking to the Lord for guidance and for his assistance.
6: I kept seeing all my pages of all them guys that I kid who
1: killed sitting next to me in the boat trying to get across that river. Those who couldn't swim, and there were many, died. More bodies were left littering the open fields of the German side as the remaining soldiers charged the Germans with bayonets. The men had rowed as fast as they could, but they couldn't outwear the sheets of deadly metal being flung at them. Men were wounded or killed, The boats were blown out of the water. The canvas sides offered no protection for the frantic men and the punctured boats began to fill with water. Helmets were used for bailing and handkerchiefs were stuffed into bullet holes. Some of the men who could exited their sinking boats and swam the remainder of the way, hoping their weapons would still function when they reached the shore. Exhausted, the survivors of Burris's I-Company reached the north bank, jumped out of the boats, Took cover and tried to catch their breath and gather their courage before pushing on. The men had to run across a 1,200 foot wide field to reach the 20 foot high dike. About halfway across the field was a shallow ditch, which gave some protection. If you could make it to the ditch, you had a chance to catch your breath before the last few hundred yards. Ordering his men to fix bayonets, Captain Moffat Burris charged up the dike, leading his men showing no mercy to the Germans. I company threw hand grenades into the German positions and shot every German who came in sight. No prisoners were taken at first. The men then moved through the fields, some heading for the railroad bridge and others toward Hof van Halle, an old Dutch fortress with a moat around it and German machine guns and anti-aircraft guns in its towers. Meanwhile, small groups from both H and I companies were attacking the north end of the railroad bridge located just west of the Nijmegen Highway Bridge and spraying Browning automatic rifle fire while awaiting reinforcements. Elements from these two companies were also fighting their way toward the north end of the still intact highway bridge, the Nijmegen Bridge, the object of all this death and dying. Lieutenant Jack Doob Company G 508 had crept to within a few blocks of the bridge when his unit was stopped by heavy machine gun and 88-millimeter fire and fought back with a bazooka, 60-millimeter mortar, and rifles. We were soon pinned down and fragmented as an effective combat unit, he said. I was kneeling behind shrubs in the yard of a structure I thought was a dental or medical office building. Several shell bursts near my location restricted my movement. The shells from the German ADH threw a tremendous amount of shrapnel. Dube recounted that, A shell hit the building behind me, and shrapnel from that explosion hit me in the back of the head, left shoulder, and left forearm. The shrapnel had penetrated through my helmet and helmet liner, leaving a jagged three-inch hole. A medic applied sulfur powder to my gaping and profusely bleeding head wound. Continued enemy shelling completely dispersed our small group, and I soon found myself alone with no weapon and much confusion due to my injury. Weakness, dizziness, and disorientation convinced me to seek cover and medical assistance. Dube was taken to a hospital, which he said was soon hit by incendiaries and set on fire. He was then evacuated by members of the Dutch Underground and carried to the basement of a private home where he remained for three or four days before being taken to the U.S. Army Field Hospital near Nijmegen. Another reminder that the Dutch people were helping all they could. And when we ask what all this was for, it is fair to say that for many people in Southern Holland, these were the days of their liberation. After four years of brutal domination by the Germans, most veterans agree that to this day, that the Dutch probably better than anyone still show their gratitude for the sacrifice these men made.
7: So the next day on the 18th, we went in there. They had a windmill and we used that as an OP, our observation post. Uh, Jake stood in the window of the windmill, uh, estimated the distance uh, to to fire the the mortars. And he gave a fire order and he stepped in the window to see where the shells were hitting so he could make an uh, adjustment. I was probably six, seven feet away from him. And he turned to me, unfortunately a a German rifleman, uh, uh, picked him off and uh, that that was it. He was probably the best liked man in our platoon. I never heard anyone say a bad word about him. If I could stand in front of his grave and say something, it'd probably be, you didn't die in vain. Uh, If any country uh, that you had to die in would be Holland. Holland's the one country that has always showed their gratitude and invariably will say, hey, we thank you for liberating us we'll never forget well here we are 73 years later and it's true they haven't forgotten
1: and now finally on day 5 30 corps had arrived we now had tanks within 11 miles of frost brigade or what was left of it at the south end of the span in Nijmegen van der Voort's battalion reinforced by British tanks and infantrymen was closing in on the structure Several tanks were knocked out, but paratroopers fought their way from house to house, from rooftop to rooftop, battling their way toward the highway bridge. The SS troops in the park started to run for the bridge, leaving behind their dead and wounded, 123 on that day. Those troops would climb up in the bridge girders, tying themselves to supports, their belts loaded with ammunition and grenades. The men of the 82nd would have to hunt them down one by one but the bridge at both ends was now in control of the Allies and the Germans had lost their advantage in firepower. German tanks and 88s still stayed within range on the banks of the river, a thousand yards in either direction. Their objective to play hell with the crossing tanks and troops who were crossing with the fear that the Germans would blow up the bridge at any moment. Now, with both ends in Allied hands, Major Cook requested tanks. He sent a message that read, Cook has the dike and the guns. Can you run a tank down the bridge to help them out? Four Shermans from the Guard's Armored Division, under command of Sergeant Peter Robinson, obliged. When the signal was given, the tanks raced across the bridge, blasting away with their machine guns and 75-millimeter main guns they managed to destroy an 88-millimeter anti-tank gun north of the bridge. Another 88 fired on one of the tanks, disabling it. When the tanks were midway across the bridge, the Germans tried to blow the structure, but nothing happened. Probably thanks to Jan van Hoof, that Dutch-resistant man who died trying to lead tanks into town. And the tanks reached the paratroopers in Lent, the town on the north side of the bridge, now a straight shot to Arnheim. There were still a few Germans on the bridge, but their resistance was soon overcome and the bridge was declared secure at 7.10pm on September 20th. That's 7pm on day 4. Still time to get to Arnheim and save Operation Market Garden. All this fighting, all the sacrifices, all the incredible heroism hinged on this moment. The price for the bridge had been high. The 504th lost 24 men killed and some seriously wounded in the river crossing and the attack on both bridges. The 501st fared worse. In the Battle for the Railroad Bridge, a total of 267 dead Germans were counted and a little more than 200 Germans were captured. Much of the city of Nijmegen was destroyed during the five days of fighting. Over 500 innocent civilians were killed. Gavin later wrote, The Dutch underground played a major part in getting this done, and they deserve a lion's share of the credit for saving the big bridge at Nijmegen. But the fighting was far from over. An area of about a mile north of the bridge was cleared by the paratroopers, opening the road to Arnheim. And now it was 7.30 p.m. on the Nijmegen Bridge. Four tanks had crossed, and the British tanks all stopped in the middle of the bridge. 100 tanks at a dead stop, stretching back miles. Captain, later to become Lord Carrington, was in the lead tank. Bloody, tired, and angry men of the 82nd, and some from the 101st who'd been riding on the convoy, approached the lead tank. Carrington wouldn't budge, saying he was waiting for orders. And this man, after the war, received a hero's welcome was given the title of Lord and became the head of the United Nations. Thirteen precious hours were lost while Carrington sat without budging in his tank in the middle of the Nijmegen Bridge. Moffat Burris, who had led the bayonet charge just hours before against the Germans to gain control of the north end of the bridge, approached the lead tank. This is his account, taken from an interview with today's guest, Tony Gosling.
2: I was a captain in the 3rd Battalion, 504 Parachute Regiment, and commanded I Company, which is one of the two assault companies that made the river crossing and captured the bridge at Nijmegen. When we were first advised that uh, we were going to be in that uh, battle, uh, we went up in this tall building, a factory, uh, electrical uh, plant building, with General Horrocks, General Browning, Colonel Tucker, and the officers from the four company commanders of the S3 of the 3rd Battalion, 504, made a visual reconnaissance of uh, looking over the river and over the pasture and the dike where the machine guns were, railroad bridge where the 20 millimeter gun was. And uh, I remember General Horrocks explaining the critical situation of British troops in Arnhem, and uh, that if we didn't get the, uh, give them some assistance at the bridge, that in a matter of hours, all would be lost. And uh, I remember Colonel Tucker uh, responding to a comment that General Horrocks made uh, when he said, General Horrocks asked Tucker, Can your lads do the job? Can they get the bridge? Colonel Tucker said, let me ask you a question, General. If we take that bridge, what assurance do we have from you that your tanks will be lined up uh, for Arnhem in force? And Horrocks, and I can remember his remarks as if they were yesterday, said my tanks will be lined up in full force, hell in for Arnhem, and nothing will stop them. That's not what happened. One gun stopped them. After we crossed, I had 50% casualties in that crossing and made it up to the dike, knocked out the machine gun, and went on and captured the north end of the bridge. Uh, four British tanks came across. The lead tank was knocked out, and the other three backed up to the bridge. And I went to the... Uh, commander of that task force, which was uh, Captain Carrington, and said, why are you stopping? And he said, well, I can't go up there. That gun will knock out the rest of my tanks. I said, we will go with you and get that gun. He said, no, I can't go without orders. And I said, well, I'm giving you orders. And. uh, an American captain, giving the British captain orders, went over like a lead balloon. And uh, he said, do I have to have orders for my British, <clears throat> for my British commander? Well, about that time, uh, my frustration was turning to anger. And uh, I can't repeat on the air what uh, I said to him at that time, but uh, it was not very complimentary, and uh, they sat there all night, even after Colonel uh, Tucker and Major Cook came and had a similar conversation with him. Why aren't you moving on? There's only one gun there. And what I couldn't understand, just a few hours before that, Horrocks had told us very explicitly, my tanks will be lined up in full force elvin for Arna. four tanks went across not all of his tanks not 10 not 20 not 40 tanks but four tanks went across and when one got knocked out they backed up and stopped why did they do that i don't know the information i have been told was that uh, carrington said his orders were to take the bridge and hold it for further orders that was not what Horrocks told us the orders would be. <laughs> so we were very, very frustrated, sitting there all night, uh, having sacrificed half of the men of my company uh, to try to rescue the British paratroopers. We knew what it was like, the paratroopers, to fight uh, Tiger tanks. We had done it at Alters, Sicily and Italy, and... Uh, and and the rest of the war. And uh, it is not a comfortable feeling. So we had a great deal of compassion for the uh, British paratroopers that were being mauled by the Tiger tanks. And as I was talking to Carrington. He was sitting in his tank, and we were having this argument about him not moving out, and When uh, when he failed to move, and I ordered him to, and he still failed to move, Uh, I cocked an atomic gun and put it to his head and told him if he didn't get this blankety-blank tank moving, I'd blow his head off. And with that, he ducks down into the tank, closes the hatch, and sits there the rest of the night. Couldn't get to him. Uh, As I understand, Carrington denies that anybody pulled a gun on him, but um, his memory is not quite as good as mine, if, if he really believes that. Uh, I I bumped into Carrington at the 65th anniversary celebration at a reception we were having for the Queen. And as he walked up, uh, General Petraeus and I were talking, and he introduced me to Carrington. And I said, well, we know each other. We met on the bridge 65 years ago. And Carrington turned and looked at me, and he said, oh, you're the chap that called me a yellow-livered coward. And uh, I said, is that what I called you? And he said, uh, yes. And said, you didn't really expect me to follow the orders of a foreign government, did you? And I said, of course I did. And then it went on to some small talk from that point.
1: While Carrington was sipping tea while locked within his tank, paratroopers of the other battalions of the 505th had a hard-fight at MOOC. General Gavin left the power station at Nijmegen, mounted his jeep, and raced to Mook, where he personally took command of the 505th defense. At Beek, about two miles southeast of Nijmegen, paratroopers from the 508th and D Company, 307th Engineers, succeeded in stopping several German attempts to take back the Wall River Bridge. Heavy fighting took place in Weidler and Beek, the latter village changing hands several times. One can't help but wonder, if Carrington could hear the gunfire while he sat in his tank, or if his headphones shut it out. Harry Roll, Company H, 508, was one of those fighting in Beak. Launching a night assault from Berg and Dahl, Company H was raked by machine gunfire coming from the cupola of a house. I dove for a ditch, said Roll, and snuggled as low as I could. I took a shoulder hit that only skinned and burned, but to my surprise, Captain Toth our CO, stood just above me in the middle of the road and called for Moon and Tucker to get that bazooka up front. Toth told him to hit the shutters on the cupola. A direct hit silenced that machine gun, allowing us to proceed down the street into Beak. After the order to pull back was given, Roll went over to the foxhole of a buddy, Cecil Bledsoe, to give him the word, only to find Bledsoe shot through the head. The sniper fire of the German was well-placed despite the darkness. Tom Horn, Company H, said that his company was involved in a heated skirmish with the Germans in the streets of Beek. They were throwing grenades and firing from everywhere. I was in a kneeling position firing my rifle at them when I got hit and knocked flat on my back. Harry Roll was behind me, and he said I was hit in the midsection because blood was coming out of my back. A few moments later, I figured out that I was hit in the base of my neck. I'm pretty sure I was hit by a burst from a machine gun because the woodwork on my rifle was also busted up. This ended my tour in the Holland campaign. Hospital life was more to my liking. Sergeant Ralph Busen was another company H paratrooper at Beak. He remembered that it was so dark during the night attack, we had to hold on to one another. All hell broke loose as we got into the center of town. After about 20 minutes of fighting, things quieted down. We pulled back out of town to the hill above it. The next morning, we found out that the Germans were still there, so we called for an artillery barrage. Each company was to attack and take the town. As we were going down a small alley with eight men, a German machine gun opened up. The gunner got five out of the eight. Frank Shimko, R.J. Brown, and I managed to duck into a small building. About 100 yards down the street, I saw a German sticking his head out of a window. It took me one shot to get him. Throwing all of our grenades down the street, we must have gotten their machine gun too, because it stopped firing. Then we got orders to withdraw. The next day, H Company took the town without firing a shot. Another company H trooper, Ollie Griffin, recalled the loss of two buddies at Beak. When the company returned to the town on September 20th after pulling out the night before, they jumped into the same slit trenches that they had dug on the 19th. Germans were waiting for them. There must have been several snipers looking right down on us, Griffin said. Sergeant Curtis Sides was in a hole about 10 feet from mine. Bill Kurzowski was in another one about 10 feet in front of Sides. The first shot hit Kurzowski in the head, killing him. The next shot hit Sides' rifle, ruining it. He turned to me and said he couldn't use his rifle. I said to get down, but I should have said, let's move. Almost immediately, the next shot hit Sides in the head and killed him. Griffin got out of the killing zone as fast as he could with bullets following him and ended up in a small woods. A few minutes later, he was joined by Frank Bagdonas. We found a place a little up the hill with a good view of Beak, Griffin said. We were observing the closest house when out the door walked a tall German soldier. He acted like no one was within 100 miles. I guess he thought we'd all took off for Berg and Dahl. Frank and I decided to aim, count to three, and both shoot. We did, and he went down. During the fierce fighting for Weiler and Beak, the 508th captured 483 prisoners, but the regiment suffered heavily. 139 killed, 479 wounded, and 178 missing, while Lord Carrington sat in his tank on the bridge. On the morning of September 21st, German tanks approached the American lines in the western part of the Wall Bridgehead. Bazooka gunner Private John Toll, C Company 504th, having no tanks to help him battle panzer tanks on his own, managed to disable the panzers on the Oosterhautsage. The remaining tanks were pulled back and the German attack was stopped, but Toll was wounded by shrapnel from enemy mortar fire and died on the spot. He was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. Of such men was Tucker's regiment made. His battered 504th PIR was relieved by the British 43rd Infantry Division day five after Frost, now wounded, had surrendered his remaining men. The 504th marched back across the bridge toward Nijmegen. There they boarded ducks and were taken to positions halfway between Nijmegen and Grosbeek to briefly rest and recuperate after Carrington withdrew into his tank and closed the hatch. We felt betrayed, Burris explained 60 years later. Carrington, by the way, denies this exchange with Burris ever took place. They were delighted to see us, said Carrington. I thought we did bloody well to get across the bridge. Shortly afterwards, Major Cook arrived and remonstrated with the British, as Burris had done, followed by Colonel Tucker, the commander of the 504th. But to no avail, the British wouldn't move. They were fighting the war by the book, Tucker would later say. Many say something else. Much is always made of the squabbling between the British and the Americans in Operation Market Garden. In the movie A Bridge Too Far, which we mentioned earlier, based on Cornelius Ryan's book of the same name, the British tank crews are shown making tea as a livered major cook, played by Robert Redford, urges them to advance. In fact, in this case, the divide was not so much between Brits and Yanks as between the do-or-die, risk-taking ethos of paratroopers and the more, by-the-book, cautious mentality of the guards. But if the guards, in fact, had a cautious mentality, what the hell were they doing involved in Monty's risky scheme? This was an entire operation which relied upon fast-moving, hard-driving, seat-of-the-pants fighting. No place for, by-the-book, cautious, mentalities. All we can guess is that Montgomery chose the wrong men for the job. Would Patton or any of his commanders have moved those tanks up to Arnheim? Easy answer, folks. But he was left by Eisenhower and Bradley somewhere out east in the middle of nowhere without gas and supplies with men who could do the job, waiting for the stupid plan of Mahdi's to blow up in their faces. Nearly all of the veterans of the 82nd talk about camaraderie among paratroopers, whether British or American. Having lost half of his own company, their thoughts were now with the men of John Frost's 2nd Battalion, who were fighting even greater odds at the Arnheim Bridge. We knew what it was for paratroopers to go up against Tiger tanks with rifles and bazookas, said Burris. Carl Kappel, the commander of H Company 82nd, knew Frost personally. Historians still argue about whether the British decision to stop at the wall was right. At that moment, as daylight faded, only four tanks were in a position to advance. Their crews were short of gasoline and ammunition. The single-lane elevated Dyke Road ahead to Arnhem. Steep banks with ditches on either side that were mined could also easily be covered by German guns and was totally unsuitable for tanks unaccompanied by infantry, at which there was at present none fighting was still going on in Nijmegen itself and the narrow corridor stretching back to Grave where the 504th had started out on September 17th. It had been cut now by the Germans in several places. Other units were stuck way back along the road in traffic, jams. Tragically, it would be 18 hours before the British tanks would decide to move forward off the bridge. The assault at 11 a.m. on the morning of September 21st was this time led by the Irish Guards but they hadn't got fire when they too were stopped by German anti-tank guns. In any case, around the same time as the first of the British tanks had arrived on the bridge at Nijmegen, John Frost's 2nd Battalion at the Arnhem Bridge had finally been overpowered after fighting almost non-stop for 72 hours. The ultimate objective of Operation Market Garden had been lost. As for Operation Market Garden, it has gone down in military history as one of the great failures of World War II a great gamble that went disastrously wrong. In the grand scheme of things, it was certainly unsuccessful. The ultimate objectives, to reach the Rhine, thrust into the Ruhr, and bring the war to a quick end, were never realized. But what is often forgotten, even in the movie Bridge Too Far, is that the operation did liberate a large section of Holland, which had been under 51 months of German occupation. The men who died in Operation Market Garden including those of the 3rd Battalion of the 504th Parachute, 82nd Airborne Division, did not do so in vain. After the withdrawal from Arnheim, the front line remained at the Rhine until March of 1945, when the Allies launched their next major offensive, this time a much more conventional one. In the meantime, the Dutch living north of the Rhine suffered terribly from the increasingly brutal German occupation. During the so-called Hunger winter of 1944, when the Nazis systematically starved the Dutch population, up to 20,000 people, mainly children and the elderly, died of starvation. Operation Market Garden, and specifically the crossing of the Wall River, that allowed the Allies to capture the bridge at Nijmegen, spared 2 million Dutch citizens that same fate. A number of questions still remain, such as Why weren't reinforcements dropped south of Arnheim in the 11-mile stretch between Nijmegen and Arnheim? Why did Eisenhower agree to the plan? Just to pacify Montgomery? Why wasn't air support called in for the German gun placements at the foot of the Nijmegen Bridge? Why was the British first airborne dropped 8 miles from Arnheim? when past experience had already taught the British that drops needed to be much closer to be effective. And was the plan sabotaged? Our guest today, Tony Gosling, has an interesting take on that. And the story of a double agent, a spy named King Kong. Tony, welcome to 1001 Heroes Podcast. It's great to have you aboard. Hey, thanks very much for inviting me. Okay, well, I don't buy
5: any of this thing about intelligence failure. I think that the intelligence people knew exactly what was going on and they knew exactly what the risks were in going ahead with Operation Market Garden um, because uh, it was his name was Brian Urquhart, who was the uh, he was the um, intelligence officer for the Airborne Corps. He actually was sacked. Right before the operation took place, he went on to become the Deputy Secretary General of NATO, actually, just after the war. Uh, and I understand he's still alive, living in New York, um, somehow attached to the UN still. But he uh, was basically saying, look, we can't do this. The intelligence that that's, we've got is that this we should not carry on with this operation because the resistance in Ireland is going to be too dangerous. Um, and he was sacked for saying that. And I think they wanted to go. They decided they were going to go ahead with the operation, even though they knew what the intelligence risks were. Also, I'd say another chap that I interviewed uh, who was a fantastic um, contact and a really authoritative source on all of this was the British Army colonel. I think he's actually a retired British Army colonel now, uh, Robert Kershaw, who wrote a book called It Never Snows in September. Now, he'd had the unique opportunity to interview uh, the uh, German General Heinz Harmel, who was a commander of, I think it was the, the 10th, 10th SS Panzer Division. But anyway, he was in, operationally in charge of the defence of the Nijmegen and Arnhem area. Uh, and it was his job. He was the guy who, in the film A Bridge Too Far, was uh, there to try and blow up uh, the Nijmegen Bridge as the British uh, tanks crossed it. That is, the bridge one too far away. And in the piece that I did a few years ago, it's called A Bridge Not Far, uh, I I point out was that uh, in the interview that Robert Kershaw did with Heinz Harmel, he was told in no uncertain terms that if you had carried on
1: at that point, it would have been all over for us. Here's a portion of that Kershaw interview for our listeners.
4: Once they had captured the bridge, and this is debatable, they could conceivably have pushed an armoured infantry group up the road to reach Arnhem. I interviewed the German SS general, Harmel, who was responsible for the defense of the bridge, and he gave me an artillery map. And artillery maps will always show the location of friendly units, and it's obvious from this particular map and his statement that there was very little on the road between Nijmegen and and Arnhem at that time. In fact, there's only a couple of companies of infantry security pickets in the village of Elf, which is midway between the two. So they may have been able to push an armoured battle group up that road. Harmel thinks so, because he very sarcastically said, and the British stop fatigue, and that's the version also um, that the Americans um, would have you believe. I'm an armchair strategist talking in hindsight and he was the man there at the time. If he says that the psychological impact of a unit pushing down that road could have been decisive then I think you have to listen. That is quite possible.
5: Now it's an interesting thing for him to say. Typical Ah, uh, German. Uh, sh- shall we say double meaning to what he's saying there? He's not just talking about that battle being all over for us. He's talking actually about the war, because um, Montgomery knew that by getting a bridgehead across the Rhine, this was going to completely compromise uh, the German defences. It would mean that uh, the the Ruhr was immediately vulnerable. That loads of the defences from the uh, the the southern sector on the western front we're going to have to be moved up to the northern sector to protect the this was going to cause chaos behind german lines cut lines of communication cut lines of supply uh, and so it, this really was one of the great i would say even crimes of world war 2 and I found it quite interesting that the commander on the ground, who was uh, General Horrocks, on the market side of the operation, or sorry, the garden side. Of the market was the airborne operation. Garden was the armored uh, assault along uh, along this uh, this narrow corridor in towards uh, the Rhine and towards Arnhem. Uh, that 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 uh, attack w- ended up being uh, a, a failure. And the fact was that if they had pressed ahead, they could have actually captured. Uh, in Arnhem they could have captured their main objective and the British troops just simply didn't do that. I think one of the the other things I found fascinating about researching this, I mean it really did feel like a gold mine going into this research. There was so much being turned up which it didn't seem anyone before had actually managed to join these dots, was that you also had a, a, a queue of US 82nd Airborne officers going to speak to um, Peter Carrington in his tank at the at Lent, which is just a, the the uh, north side of the Nijmegen Bridge, once the Nijmegen Bridge had been taken, and they were saying first of all it it was uh, Captain Moffat Burris who I interviewed, then it was uh, about half an hour later it was Major Cook, uh, his commanding officer, then uh, from then to Colonel Tucker. And then finally, General Gavin himself, who was a general commanding 82nd Airborne, all went to speak to Carrington. Eventually, Moffat burrish says uh, Carrington actually just went down inside his tank and unlocked the hatch because he was fed up with all these American soldiers uh, trying to force him to carry on down the road. And he could quite easily have carried on down the road as Sergeant Robinson, who was one of um, uh, Carrington's colleagues in the Grenadier Guard's Sherman tanks, crossing um the uh, the vale uh, at neumagen sergeant robinson actually charged straight down the road as carrington should have done and a whole of the a, a whole of the 30 corps should have done to arnhem to relieve the troops there um and, and sergeant robinson charged into lent and a bit further on underneath the railway bridge went a, a couple of miles towards arnhem it was around about uh, i think it was around about 11 mile journey which in those tanks could have been done in about around about maybe 25 minutes uh, and they just decided not to do it but Robinson was it totally pretty much totally successful in one tank on his own in blasting his way right the way through Lent and out the other side and this interview as I mentioned with Robert Kershaw, Heinz Harmel said that all there was and he shows the evidence for this in the artillery map from the war that all there was uh, in Elst which was a little um, village halfway across the island from Val, from the vaal to the Rhine, that is from Nijmegen to Arnhem, was just a few uh, security pickets armed with rifles, so there was really nothing to stop them. So I think that summing up what happened there was by failing to bring the armoured reinforcements up to Arnhem, that is to say a core of tanks, we're not just talking about the Grenadier Guards, the Irish Guards were sitting there waiting to go, some of the Coldstream Guards were engaged in, still in the... Um, uh, in the Grosbeak Heights, uh, there was there were certainly coming on for 100 or so tanks which could have been sent down that road that evening, and they weren't. So the reason they weren't, I would suggest, was that this wasn't just an accident, that somebody somewhere didn't want this mission to succeed.
1: When you start to research it, it really does look like that. He sat there blocking up that entire 30 corps for 18 hours, and that cost... Frost everything up in Arnhem. He had to, he had surrendered during that time that they sat there. It's just a, a shame that that happened. It's, it's far worse than that. I mean, Frost himself
5: was really angry. Uh, and at one of the reunions uh, before he died, he was the um, commander in charge of, I think it was the um, 2nd Battalion of the... Uh, 1st Airborne Division, the troops that were holding the bridge at Arnhem. He uh, was listening to a speech by um, someone from the Grenadier Guards, Carrington or somebody else who was at the uh, reunion, and he shouted at the top of his voice, call that fighting, and threw his fist up in the air. He was even even to his dying day, was really angry that, uh, that the um, other contingents of the British Army. And I remember hearing a story from a military historian here in Britain about um, British Army meetings to this day, where the airborne troops that go to these meetings and airborne commanders that turn up to meet, you know, places like, um, you know, uh, Aldershot, Warminster, Amesbury, the places where the British Army are these days, um, that if they go to a meeting between people who are uh, tank commanders and airborne commanders, the airborne commanders always turn up a little bit early to the meeting. And so they sit there and when the tank commanders come in, they say, oh, you're late again, are you? Because they're referring back to this incident at Arnhem. And, uh, you know, I think it, it, in a way it shows that Gavin and the 82nd Airborne were really doing their job. and They were absolutely 100% on the mission. And they believed that it was possible, and of course it was possible, to have, uh, to have taken the bridge at Arnhem and held Arnhem. Uh, and I spoke to Tony Hibbert directly. He was, one of the, he was a brigade major at the bridge who survived uh, the war, and he died only just a couple of years ago. And when I spoke to him, he said that everybody on that mission knew that if they could succeed in holding that bridge, the war would be finished by Christmas time. They'd looked at all of the, um, you know, the, certainly the senior people had seen just what a state the Germans would have been in if they'd have taken on them. And uh, they just failed to do that because of a complete failure of the, of the tanks to come along at, at the right time. And all sorts of excuses have been put up over the years to say why Horrocks did that. He was the commander of the uh, ground troops. Why did he just simply
1: sit around? Lots of excuses have been used, but none of them really holds water. Uh, Horrocks seemed to be in league with Carrington. Horrocks, of course was his was Carrington's command officer and uh, Horrocks was approached too from what I understand and he said that they didn't have the they didn't have enough ammunition, basically had a pretty weak excuse.
5: Well, there was another excuse which is often trotted out, which is that um, the, the dikes were very narrow uh, and at night time it would be very difficult to manoeuvre. Another one was that they would be, tanks would be easy to pick off. Well, the fact of the matter is uh, that they're at night. It's actually a lot easier. And in, an, in another um, interview that he did at some point during World War Two, Horrocks is quoted as saying that he was he, he favoured the night assault and that he knew that the Germans were more vulnerable at night. So he used to enjoy, uh, you know, enjoy, it's probably not the right word, but he actually used to like to deploy his troops at night, knowing that the Germans would would be off their guard. Um, As for the ammunition, well, we know that uh, the particular troops that had come across, I mean, this is specific and well-known, actually, the particular tank troops that had come across from the Grenadier Guards over the Nijmegen Bridge were actually the reserve of that unit. So they hadn't actually fired any ammunition. And they had full ammunition tanks or whatever, you know, I don't know exactly what goes on inside a Sherman tank and where the shells are, whether they're high-explosive, armour-piercing or whatever in there. But they certainly hadn't been being used in the assault on the bridge. They were the strategic reserve. And once the bridge had been taken, they were the ones to, uh, to be the, become then the spearhead to move across the bridge. There was. There's also this interesting aspect to it. Was was is the bridge going to be blown up or not? And I think there's an there's a backstory to this. In that there was a conflict going on between uh, Adolf Hitler and his Reichsfuhrer, who was effectively his controller, his treasurer, Martin Bormann. And Hitler had ordered that there must be a slash and burn policy, and this was um, supposed to have been promulgated in August 1944. That they would destroy all bridges destroy all buildings but the thing is Bormann was uh, secretly in communication with some of the allies and they had come to an arrangement whereby as much as possible would be handed over intact so this was one of the first times that major orders by adolf hitler have been countermanded secretly by borman and so i do wonder whether actually that uh, there was something going on where borman was getting his way that the bridge wasn't blown up at nijmegen Importantly, we keep getting told about Market Garden that the Germans managed to find the plans and that they, it was in a glider that crashed that they got the plans from. Well, I've heard various stories about where this glider was, different stories. None of them actually seem to be easily corroborated. It's much simpler. I think, I think that's effectively a cover story. Uh, because I came across a book which was written in the 1950s um, by a, a British Army intelligence colonel who was actually, I think, a Dutch, Dutch national. But he wrote a book uh, or wrote a chapter of uh, his book was called Spycatcher. But the chapter was called The Traitor of Arnhem. And he had interrogated a, a Dutch underground, what they called a recce commander, a guy called Christian Lindemans, known under the codename of King Kong who was supposedly one of the great um, underground commanders. The only thing was, uh, quite often, he would send his partisans, effectively, partisans in, to do a raid on the Germans. Lots of people would get killed, and only he would survive. Uh, He was a very big guy, and it turns out that he was actually, uh, as Pinto discovered, just before the Battle of Arnhem, he was working for the Abwehr. And he he'd begun to discover this. He was on the trail of this as an intelligence officer. Absolutely brilliant bit of work by Oreste Pinto. And at which time he was taken out of his command. Uh, so in other words, he was beginning to interrogate this guy, but suddenly he was spirited away because he was going to be involved in Arnhem. And he was sent in to Arnhem, apparently to make contact with the Dutch underground. He was parachuted in, I believe. Uh, before the battle took place or he may have been spirited across enemy lines I'm not sure, you know, the sort of no man's land but anyway, the fact was rather than go and help um, warn the Dutch underground that this attack was coming, he went straight to the Abwehr and delivered over what he knew, just a few days before the battle took place, so I think it's it's a little bit rich to think that, uh, oh, well, the Germans just came across a load of plans which just happened to be sitting in a glider. Well, it's very unlikely that the plans would have been just sitting in a glider. Um, you know, that, it was well known that gliders can be shot down and that people might you – know, so the plans are very unlikely to be somewhere like that.
1: No, I agree with you. There's a lot of research out there that praises the Germans for their ability to respond so fast to this attack. But in actuality, when you really start to look at it, it seems in many ways as if they had uh, were expecting it and were starting to position those exactly. troops even before exactly. the war Well, this whole of idea
5: plans. of the 9th and 10th SS Panzer Division uh, on the outskirts of Arnhem just happening to be hanging around, they were moved there just a few days beforehand. And it could well have been they were moved out there on the intelligence gained from uh, King Kong, you know, by, by the Abwehr, saying, well, look, this is going to happen. We want to make sure we've got the big guns hanging around.
1: You've interviewed some uh, very key players, among them Moffat Burris of the 82nd Airborne and Brigade Major General Tony Hibbert, who was with Frost's uh, division in Arnheim. What were their feelings regarding Montgomery and British High Command? I think generally
5: anyone, there is, it's almost like the sheep and the goats when it comes to Arnhem. People either can see this or they can't. And they try and stick to the, I think, completely erroneous historical record, or they admit that we've been, they've had the wool pulled over our eyes here for a long, long time. I mean, all you need to do is look at some of, the, I mean, for example, like I said about Brian Urquhart's uh, resignation as the intelligence officer, should have been alarm bells ringing there. Also, the uh, appalling behavior of General Boy Browning, who was the A commander of all three airborne divisions in Market Garden. Terrible behaviour. He didn't seem to take any interest in the battle whatsoever. First of all, he didn't even go to the key objective. He went to uh, Nijmegen, which was the secondary bridge. Uh, He wouldn't go to Arnhem. I think maybe he knew that it was going to be a rather bloody battle there. Uh, And so, you know, no real courage shown by him. Not only that, he then spent most of his time between two different things one was diverting general gavin from the 82nd away from the main objective which was the bridge towards a bogus objective which was the grosbeak heights he was saying well we've got to take the grosbeak heights before we take the bridge and gavin went along with this you know because he was a senior officer saying that you've got to go for the gross big heights this allowed the germans to get into the bridge at nijmegen and reinforce it and made, meant that it was a horrendous battle to actually take the bridge which was his main objective so he was doing that but the other thing he was doing was tooling around in his jeep and he took a whole load i think it was something like 20 gliders worth of um headquarters so a lot of that is just luxury it's things like kitchens and you know this kind of nice luxury staff for his headquarters but he got his jeep and he started tooling around that whole area Uh, and in fact he even drove up to the grosbeak heights because this was the border with germany so that he could be photographed for the british newspapers as the first british officer uh, general to um, be urinating on German soil. So this guy was not a serious character. After the war, he was an alcoholic, actually. Uh, and um, he was married to the writer Daphne de Maurier. And he was put in charge of the finances of the royal family. But he was a very unhappy man. Um, and I think he was just kind of disturbed by it all. The other thing Browning did is he um, tried to put the blame for Market Garden on to, in a very cowardly fashion, on to General Sosabowski, who's the Polish commander, who had actually, these Poles were absolutely misdeployed. They could have quite easily have been parachuted in uh, on the Tuesday potentially, maybe uh, on the Wednesday of Market Garden, onto the bridge to reinforce frost. These these poles were absolutely gunning to have a go at the Germans, uh, particularly after what had happened to their countrymen, you know, in Warsaw, etc. And so they were an incredibly, they would have could have been the ace in the hole for that operation, but they were completely misdeployed by being parachuted into the wrong place at the wrong time. And uh, then they were blamed for the errors of, of Browning. So he really does come out as the uh, the worst commander here. I mean, I'll just just, com- just to compare, w- really, w- with um, the Bond writer Ian Fleming, who was in naval intelligence during the war. He also, after the war, became an alcoholic, but he dealt with it. You know, he became a writer of fiction because he knew the things that he knew about what had happened in World War Two were disturbing him, and he started to drink. Um, and so he turned his energy into writing fiction because he knew that you couldn't be done under the official secrets act for revealing secrets if you're writing it in a fiction book and he found a way to kind of get but uh browning never did that and uh, and i think he was he was he's really one along with um carrington browning and carrington are the two main people i think were responsible for that failure the end the re- end result of the failure was allowing another four or five months for the nazis to squirrel away their wealth because this program was well in train uh, the, the the recrudescence of the Nazis after World War II, they wanted to make sure all of the money that had been collected in Berlin, all of the wealth, all everything. I mean, we're talking about paintings, we're talking about gold, we're talking about securities, we're talking about bearer bonds, a massive wealth, something at the time of well over a billion dollars worth of uh, wealth, uh, and they were they began on a program in August 1944 of squirrelling that away around the world, and so the failure of Market Garden gave them the time to do that. And Bormann was a key character in, in that. Uh, he was the guy who he, he held the keys to the Nazi bank accounts. In fact, Ian Fleming even flew to uh, Switzerland to talk to the Swiss intelligence. And just as he was leaving, having not got very far, they gave him a piece of paper with a number on, which he, when he got back to London, found was Martin Bormann's Nazi party membership number.
1: <laughs> I hadn't heard that one. Who was Prince Bernhard?
5: Yeah, well, he was also <laughs> responsible for this. He was the guy that sent in the um, – he was actually originally a Nazi. He was uh, in the SS in the 1930s, uh, but then he married into the Dutch royal family and supposedly gave up any connections with the Nazi party. Um, and then he came to London, and he was you know, the, uh, with the Dutch royal family in exile, um, went to Canada um, with his wife, uh, Queen Juliana, And he was very much involved in market garden planning. And a lot of people would say he was the, you know, he was basically the conduit for the spy uh, King Kong, Christian Lindemans. Uh, And as the Dutch liaison officer for the operation, there are some intriguing photographs of Montgomery uh, and General Horrocks with Prince Bernhard stood there looking over their shoulders at the market garden plans. So I think the... The Germans were all over this operation. They knew exactly what was about to happen and and they had managed formally on the ground rather than using secret communications of any sort to actually get physically to get plans through King Kong, through Christian Lindemans, who, by the way, was bumped off very quickly after the end of the war uh, so that he couldn't ever... Um, tell anyone about his role uh, uh, straight to the adverse straight to the uh, German army. I mean, I, I have to say one thing. I have to say about, and it's fascinating talking to Robert Kershaw, the colonel, the British Army colonel, who was over in Germany, talking to these uh, German generals before they died. Uh, Harmel and uh, Hartzer, I think it was, Modal and the rest of them, Bitrish were playing a very, very, very good defensive battle. Very, very good defensive game. They were really stopping the uh, the advance of the allied armies at every turn but the thing is that this particular time it looks like they had help from our side and it looks as if at that point that was a key factor in allowing nazis to actually survive the war you know in a financial way and in, in, I've, I've had more than one person say to me well it looks now as if the nazi empire is composed of banks not tanks, and they take over using t- uh, ordinary kind of. Uh, they buy you up, they buy you out, which is just as effective as blasting you with a tank and getting rid of you that way. Uh, in fact, in a way, uh, using money to buy people out and to take over, take them over in a hostile takeover, uh, is more powerful because you can do it almost anywhere. Having read the two key books about, I think, the end game of World War Two, which is one of which is John Ainsworth Davis, he writes under the pen name. Uh, of Christopher Crichton it's called Op JB and the other one is actually CBS journalist um, Paul Manning he was the guy reporting on the western front for CBS during World War II and he wrote a book called Martin Bormann: Nazi in Exile you can start to put together the pieces of why someone would want to sabotage such a deft attack which is what this was. I mean, it it was a really well aimed punch, and and really that was to to secrete much of the Nazi wealth over in South America and Switzerland, then launder it through Sullivan and Cromwell law firm. That's Alan Dulles' law firm in New York, and invested into 750 companies, which Martin Borman over in South America and Paul Manning says created. And um, those companies then had former SS officers, former SS people, and Jewish people um, made directors of those firms. And the idea of putting Jewish people on the firms was that no one would ever suspect that this firm could have uh, be put together by Nazis and be effectively a kind of Nazi front in the, in the world today.
1: One thing I wanted to go back to is General Sosabowski – it, there was a, it, He was played extremely well by Gene Hackman in the movie A Bridge Too Far when he approached, when Sosabowski approached Browning and said, listen, this this plan is suicide. And Browning, of course, shut that down pretty quickly. And I think Browning pretty much uh, gave him his retribution when he, didn't, when he told the Polish tr- paratroops that there just weren't enough planes to take them over there and finally did end up dropping them right on top of uh, German guns. When they did drop them, I think all that was just to get back at Sosabowski. Whatever happened to Sosabowski after the war, do you know? Well, he
5: died a pauper, which is horrific. And um, I remember chatting to Tony Hibbert about him. In fact, uh, I put up a YouTube film with uh, Hibbert, who was 1st Airborne Division Brigade, um, yeah, Brigade Major. At the bridge, and he said that he thought that the British Army should formally apologise to the Polish Army and to Sosabowski's family about what happened because it was such an appalling thing to do. I mean, really, totally inexcusable to blame. uh, And I think, in a way, the, uh, you know, if I'd have been the. browning or or or, you know a commander on the day i would have seen the poles as your ultimate shock troops really for any kind of emergency or difficult situation like there was in arnhem these are the perfect perfect troops to drop right on top of the situation uh, who would absolutely make the best of that fight to reinforce um frost at the bridge and they never did that they did the total opposite they just put them in the way of the german guns as you said so this we've gone way beyond this being a uh, an accident or a mistake this is quite it's quite obvious that there are deliberate attempts to make sure that the ryan bridgehead doesn't happen and uh and i think to this day uh we 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 deserve this whole episode needs to be looked at properly deserve a complete revision of it being a bridge too far because it wasn't a bridge too far it was a bridge very very close and let's just bear in mind that the german general on the day who was there commanding the defenses of Arnhem and nijmegen made it absolutely clear that if they had just carried on from the bridge where carrington was then it would have been all over. And I think that's absolutely clear now. You can see all the evidence that he's 100% correct to say that, that uh, what we would have had was a column of Sherman tanks pouring up the road straight into Arnhem and i'm afraid that the uh, germans up there would i mean there may have possibly been two tiger tanks for them to have dealt with which is not an easy task for a sherman uh, to deal with two tiger tanks but they had of course they had uh, the uh, 82nd airborne who were actually jumping on the tanks who would have come along with them and had uh, you know some um, anti-tank capability but the tanks themselves i'm sure they could have dealt with two tigers uh, because they were crossing the arnhem bridge in a southerly direction at about around about the same time as uh, sergeant robinson was charging into lent and blasting away uh, he took out i think it was a self-propelled gun was the only main the only uh the only defense that there was apart from the bridge itself at Nijmegen, because that was the defence and there wasn't anything else. So they took out that one self-propelled gun. You have to remember that it was impossible for the Germans to get things across, uh, to reinforce across the Arnhem Bridge because the British were still defending it at that point. What they were having to do was they had to to take all their heavy equipment down to the Panadon Ferry. They were trying to get it across the ferry bit by bit. I mean, it's a really difficult thing to do to get a tank on a ferry, and it was it was excruciatingly impossible to get everything, so they couldn't. And they were, even though they were getting troops across on the uh, on the ferry, this is these, uh, these SS soldiers from the Panzer Division across Panzer Grenadiers, um, they, they had to then march everywhere and walk everywhere. They, had, they hadn't got their transport they were supposed to have, so they're having to do everything on night marches and things like that. So it was an absolute chaos situation for the Germans who were putting all of their efforts into into uh, attacking the British in Arnhem, and they had virtually nothing left for, um, for Nijmegen. So it's quite clear that the battle,
1: that's at Nijmegen,
5: which is where the battle was lost, not at Arnhem.
1: Well, and deliberately so. Tony, I thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I think we very, very much agree that there was a lot more going on Behind the scenes with Operation Market Garden, then. then. i just like to say one thing because this assault yep. river crossing by the 82nd sure. was
5: one of the great moments of the Second World War, really incredible, almost reckless bravery to take that bridge. Um, for them to then have the British generals Browning and Horrocks throw that back in their face was just absolutely appalling. One of the thing, I mean, in a way, I think the British should be apo- uh, apologizing to the American army for that one incident
1: i agree with you and and you know the movie heartbreak ridge was big they should have heartbreak bridge because that's the whole thing behind this story is how much sacrifice was made to get to that point and then to have it basically sabotaged by british command just unbelievable story and finally just that the piece that i wrote about it is uh, up on
5: the russia today website um, it's uh, it's that is to say the summary of the research that I did it's called a betrayal too far only brutal honesty will do at Arnhem's 70th anniversary so I wrote that for the 70th anniversary which of course for many of the people participants even in their sort of 80s and 90s would have been the last possible time uh, that people would have gone back to um, Arnhem to them to to commemorate the market garden and the uh, the interviews um, with Robert Kershaw and Moffat Burry's are on our show page, which is thisweek.org.uk, and that's the the Friday Drive Time programme that we did, uh, and also uh, A Bridge Not Far on YouTube.
1: Thank you. Is there any more contact information you want to give people who might want to get back in touch with you with questions? Uh,
5: anyone that wants to get hold of me can find me via Bilderberg.org at the contact page. That's my email address. is Tony at Cultureshop.org.uk. That's S-H-O-P, Cultureshop, one word.org.uk, .org.uk. Um, or... Uh, you'll find my phone number on there too. So you can drop me a text or give me a call so long as it's a sensible time of day. Uh, Always (laughs) happy to chat with people or email. Uh, It might be easier though. Um, But, you know, I think the thing is, uh, you know, this is unfinished business because we're still having to deal with the crooks, the allied traitors that sabotaged this operation back in September 1944. And next time we deal with this massive fascist crime empire, we're going to have to make a proper job of it.
1: I couldn't agree with you more. Tony, thank you very much. Enjoyed it.
8: Thank you. Of course, it's very easy to look over the, what caused the failure after the event and put your hand on it. But in the the middle of the event itself, it's quite different. Everyone felt that the lack of aggression of 30 Corps to achieve its objectives, even within some reasonable time of what was thought to be possible, had a great deal to do with with the failure. The airdrop was not sufficient, of course, to carry out a plan like this the way we would have liked. You always want more than you can get. In theory, of course, and I think this would be a principle in any airborne operations from now on, you must drop all your combat troops at one time. And you must drop them near the objective and not six or eight miles away, as Urquhart did uh, in the drops at Arnhem, his... uh, his main landing areas were, I think, six miles to the west. And it just doesn't work. You've got to take your losses and drop it on the target. Well, my task was to take the three bridges uh, leading into, across the Rhine at Arnhem uh, on that first afternoon. And we got, uh, after a certain amount of skirmishing and... Uh, meeting a few Germans on the way from the dropping zone uh, to the bridges we actually got onto the railway bridge when it was blown uh, by the enemy uh, in our
6: faces.
9: We knew at that time the opposition was not going to be very great and we thought we really shouldn't have much difficulty. Our difficulty possibly would be to get there at all in face of the enemy uh, of air opposition. We never recovered from the fact that we had to land some seven or eight miles away from our objective. Now that was a a, a major factor in really determining the the fate of that particular operation. It was far too far. Second was that the lifts did not come in as we hoped on time because of weather and for other reasons. The third one was I think another major one was that the, the second army didn't manage to get up to us Uh, in the time which was originally hoped for. We thought we would be joined within two days or three days at the very most, but in fact, as uh, things turned out, we eventually stayed ourselves north of the river for some nine days. Der schwerste Fehler The greatest mistake was that they jumped too far
8: away. I call it hedging along the horizon.
4: That's what I said
8: to my own parachutists.
4: Just as General Gavin said, as
8: he wrote in his book, I told them you must, under no circumstances, hedge along the horizon. You must, under all circumstances, you must get hold of the target in a hand-to-hand battle, even if that involves losses. These losses pay back handsomely later on. Arnhem was the proof.